Um, it is July 7th, and I'd like to welcome you to the Vegetable Beat. This is a live weekly discussion during the growing season for vegetable producers in the Great Lakes and Midwest region. My name is Matt Kleinhens. I'm with Ohio State University, and I am serving as the host today. Michael Reinke of Michigan State University Extension is our Zoom engineer uh, working behind the scenes and making this all possible. So we thank him for his contributions. Today we are speaking with Becky Seidman. Uh, Becky is a professor and extension specialist with the University of New Hampshire. She has multiple roles there, including research uh, researcher, uh, state extension specialist, and the coordinator of the Sustainable Agriculture and Horticulture Program. It's also important to note that before joining the University of New Hampshire, Becky worked as a geneticist and lettuce breeder with the USDA and Salinas. Uh, this combined production uh, and breeding genetics experience makes Becky very uniquely qualified to discuss our topic of the day, which is abiotic physiological disorders in vegetable crops. So as you probably know, these disorders have their beginnings in crop genetics and management, and they can be very disruptive and very costly. So I'm very pleased to have the opportunity to discuss uh, these disorders with Becky today. And we hope that the conversation allows you uh, to understand and limit the occurrence of these disorders and limit the damage that they bring to your operation, uh, which, uh, which can be considerable in the worst of cases. Certainly we want to answer your questions about physiological disorders. So if you are listening live via Zoom at glv.net slash listen, or if you are listening live via Facebook, at facebook.com slash veggiebeat. Please submit your questions to the chat or Q&A box uh, or Facebook comments. And we will do our best to, to address each and every one of them as we go forward, but others we might save until the end uh, after there's been a bit of a conversation involving Dr. Seidman and I. <clears throat> so, excuse me. So with that bit of background, uh, I'd like to just get into the topic of the, of the day. And uh, Becky, this is an opportunity, uh, if I could, to uh, ask you to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about your work and how, and your work specifically to uh, these abiotic physiological disorders, uh, if you will, please. Sure. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, normally, I would give an introduction that sounded a lot like the one that you gave. So um, you did a very nice job summarizing all the, the things that I do. Um, I'll, I'll say a little bit about the kind of um, how I spend my time here as an extension specialist slash researcher, et cetera. Um, I work with vegetable um, crops, but also berry crops. And um, I tend to do a variety of research projects, looking at sort of weirder cropping systems and weirder crops, as well as, you know, some super profitable crops like you know, high tunnel tomato and so forth. And also um, season extension strategies, because these are huge in the Northeast. Um, and they're, they're ways that farmers can sort of capture a little more market share and um, have something sort of unique to offer. So that's, that's kind of what I focus on. And of course, you know, with any of these high value crops, um, like tomato and lettuce and peppers and so forth, um, you know, disorders can, like you say, really do a number on your profits. And it can be very discouraging to see otherwise super beautiful things right. <laughs> just not quite hit the mark from a quality standpoint. No question. I mean, I, I of course, I don't farm for profit. I, I um, very much enjoy interacting with all the people who do and the people who rely on them. And I just every once in a while stop to 
stop and pause uh, uh, around the question of, you know, okay, so there's total market, total yield, there's a number of pounds or number of fruits or what have you. Um, and then there's the number that reached the, the marketable uh, quality, you know, threshold. And the difference between those two numbers, uh, unfortunately for some people can be large. And the burden that they put on the, on the operation because of that, you know, 80% marketable yield or whatever the number might be, that means that 20% of what was produced can't go to market, can't, can't bring a revenue. Somehow it needs to be disposed of. Um, it's only, it only makes itself known pretty much at harvest time, which means it's getting in the way uh, of, the, uh, of uh, the other operation. So it, it, it causes some disruptions. And, and you mentioned you know, the weird and weirder crops and also the main season crops, uh, uh, standard crops, fuel plus berry. You must have seen quite a few, a range of physiological disorders, especially when you consider the season extension uh, approaches that you know we use. Uh, we're putting crops in all kinds of all kinds of um, situations. Are there any that stand out to you that are particularly problematic? Um, if you were to choose uh, either an early season tomato or late season tomato, or, or what, regardless of the crop, or is there a situation that you think? stands out as far as creating the highest likelihood for a physiological disorder that you would like to highlight? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, over, over my time traveling around and seeing what troubleshooting situations on farms and seeing, hearing from folks directly, um, as to their experiences, there's lots of disorders that we see and that are out there, like, you know, hollow heart of potato and um, broccoli. And, you know, we see sometimes in high tunnels in winter, we see um, weird edemas and things where tissues are frozen and cracked and all kinds of temperature related things. But, you know, when I think about the most important disorders and the ones that cause the most trouble um, and that I hear about the most, it's tomato disorders. It's um, the suite of problems relating to um, fruit quality. It's yellow shoulder, it's cracking, it's um, uh, blossom end rot. Um, sometimes and all, you know, go on down the list, right? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, you know, when I, I worked with lettuce, lettuce tip burn was something that I spent a lot of time focusing on. Um, I see it some, in amongst commercial growers, but not as much as I would have expected um, possibly when I, I came here. So I really see a lot of tomato problems, probably because tomato is something where you invest a lot in that crop and they're very high value. And so you really wanna recoup as many of those, those fruits as you possibly can. Absolutely. You know, for somebody who might be coming to the conversation, maybe with a little bit less experience than others, um, you know, we're, I, I, maybe we just hit, hit the pause button very briefly and just explain that these these disorders, if you will, are abiotic in nature. They don't have a, a, a disease organism or an insect pest uh, at their at their root cause, right? So that's why we would call them abiotic. They're often related to the physiology of the plant or fruit in some way. Uh, so often those two words come together: abiotic, physiological. And you mentioned the, the whole many of the of the big set of of tomato. They also don't interfere with necessarily the edible quality of the fruit. Would that be would that be fair to say? I mean, it makes them unsightly to look at in some people's eyes. But does it leave them um, uh, 
uh, in a poor eating quality state in, in your experience or, or well yeah it's a good question i think it can actually um certainly cracking is not inherently problematic as long as you catch it soon but it does open fruits up to decay sooner than they would if they were intact so that can in fact um you know it can reduce shelf life so that's problematic um i think yellow shoulder when it's severe um certainly requires that you trim more of the fruit um and so what because it's actually physically hard and not that pleasant to eat and so um i think in a way it while it requires just trimming that does kind of reduce eating quality and of course blossom and rot yeah that that kind of takes a fruit from looking real succulent and delectable to not real quickly uh, yeah. <laughs> depending on how very, severe it is <laughs> yeah it would you one would have to have a special a special patience <laughs> to want to to want to really warm up to a fruit that have a, has a fruit a severe case of blossom and rot if you will so totally. of all of those or any others i mean uh, if i look if i just think maybe i shouldn't out loud you know the many the, the nine families botanical families of vegetable crops you know some fruit some root shoot tuber um, uh, lettuce, you know, stem and all, all the plant parts. And then the number of physiological disorders that are famous for some of them, like buttoning and, you know, there's the cucurbit, not cucurbit, but the, um, the brassica group that have, uh, you know, uh, especially cauliflower and, and, uh, and broccoli. I know that you have a lot of experience with those two crops. Um, they have, you know, blind heads and, and that sort of thing. Now they have their own particular set, right? So if you go down the, just about every, vegetable in your seed catalog, there's a chance for them to go wrong. Is that, would that be fair to say? And, sure. That's kind of a pessimistic outlook, but yeah, yeah, I know. I know. We're trying to set a low bar, but is it, is it true that, that it, um, almost any of them can go, can go sideways in some way with a physiologic disorder? Do you, do you happen to know of a vegetable that seems to be impervious to the, for the most part, you know, like functional? I don't, but I, what I, I gave this a little thought ahead of time. Like, are there any that don't get any disorders? And I came up with a few that I couldn't think of the disorder for, but that's just because I don't work with the crop enough. I'm positive that if I worked with, you know, I'm not even going to name them because if I named them, somebody would know, Um, you know, if I worked with them more, I'm sure there's disorders. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, am going to hesitate also, but uh, I'm thinking, you know, sweet potato, well, of course they get misshapen and, and uh, all, all that sort of thing. So now that we've maybe established that <laughs> there are very few, if any crops that have their own notable uh, disorders, um, let's tap into your genetics expertise a little bit. Um, and you, uh, if we could, there's been a lot of effort, I'm sure, put into breeding for disorder resistant, if you will, um, varieties. Is that an area of focus you think in most of our major crops, or is it is it a, uh, is it an add-on? I mean, I'm not asking you to speak for the entire industry necessarily, but you know, drawing your experience with lettuce, if you will, and, and, and any other experience that you want to bring to bear on the question of you know just how breeders are attacking these disorders that rob people basically of their profit. Yeah, I think that um, I think that it varies a little bit from crop to crop, but of course, but that extreme susceptibility to a disorder would be a deal breaker for new varieties in a bunch of crops. 
one of the real challenges. So kind of, yes. <laughs> sure, so sure. it's, it's something you definitely would be selecting for and looking at. But one of the real tricks with making progress in breeding for resistance to these disorders is that they aren't always the result of really predictable situations and conditions. And so that makes it super hard for a plant breeder to apply sort of selection criteria consistently and, and select away from problems. Really, right. you know, plant breeders love nothing better than a good um, pathogen infested soil or like a really a hard screen to put yeah. their crops through. And with um, a lot of these abiotic disorders, you sometimes get lucky in your breeding fields and get a lot of them. And that's fabulous, but you often don't get lucky and it's hard to be consistent about it. So um, I'd say there, there, I am not really aware of a lot of programs that really try to create that work super hard to try to create those selection um, sort of thresholds and instead rely on once a variety gets close to release and maybe you're going to evaluate it over an extensive area, you hope that some of these things will show up. Um, but it's right. kind of a tricky thing to solve genetically. This might be an opportunity for us to comment. Uh, and I, again, I'm going to appeal to your judgment here, but this might be an opportunity for us to comment on um, I'll just say widely held, some widely held notions about physiological disorders and the variety relationship there. Like I have heard, oh, the heirloom varieties, they're notorious for having, you know, uh, for, for exhibiting a lot of physiological disorders. Um, can we make such a sweeping statement like that? Do you, do, you, do you, or not? I mean, would that be, would that be inappropriate? Is it more or less variety to variety? Or can we say that hybrids are generally less likely to show a disorder than a typical heirloom? I don't want to, uh, I feel like I'm putting you on the spot, but just from the, from the breeding selection evaluation, you know, release perspective, um, would we, how much, how much weight would we put on the genetics in that case uh, relative to, to say the management of the crop? I definitely think that, um, I, I wouldn't go so far as to generalize that, you know, modern hybrids don't have uh, disorders or way less susceptible or that in general hybrids are less susceptible. But I would say that um, especially if we focus on tomato a little bit, because that's, um, you know, one that we're really where there's a lot of knowledge on this, actually, with tomatoes, those heirloom varieties are susceptible. They're, they're extremely susceptible to a number of disorders. And that's, that's not going too far out on a limb. You know, there's a, a single gene in tomato that makes the shoulders ripen non-uniformly. And those varieties that happen to be heirlooms that have that tend to get yellow shoulder much more severely if they're in the right condition. So that's an example, but um, for sure. And a lot of variety, a lot of heirloom varieties tend to get that cat facing, which is, you know, sort of distorted fruit that doesn't necessarily render them unmarketable. It just renders them different looking, but um, you know, 
yeah, there's definitely some, there are some correlations between varieties that are more susceptible or less susceptible to the disorders for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I mean, that's, that's been my experience, but uh, you know, I'm always, always very interested in cross-checking, um, you know, what I'm told or what I read or what I hear or what I even see uh, as often as possible. So uh, folks, again, I want to just, just to, to hit the pause button briefly and, and mention that we are speaking with Dr. Becky Seidman at the University of New Hampshire. We're talking about abiotic physiological disorders. Um, and as you uh, have probably guessed, if you've uh, been listening or uh, missed the introduction, Becky has a unique combination of experience and, and, and expertise in breeding genetics and crop management. And one of her many roles at the University of New Hampshire is, is a state specialist there. And she explained earlier that she works with vegetable crops and berry crops. And um, among those crops, uh, I, I must, uh, believe, uh, some, if you will, non-traditional crops and, and many of the, the, same, the same traditional ones that many of us are familiar with. And we've been focusing on physiological disorders, partly because they can be very disruptive to a farm. They can rob the farmer of profit potential because they, they can render the fruit basically or the, or the product unsaleable. And so money has been put into, you know, producing that crop that isn't going to be recouped from the sale. And, and so uh, people are always interested in maintaining the highest possible uh, level of what we call marketable yield, right? Um, for every hundred pounds or every hundred units that is uh, the plant produces, one can sell a hundred pounds of it. We'd like to sell 102 pounds, but we that's a subject for another day. Um, and the most recent part of our conversation has been around kind of the, we've been dancing around the edge of, kind of the genetic basis of these physiological, dis, of, of some of these physiological disorders. And I think up front, we agree that there are many of them. So, you know, if you go down crop by crop, uh, you know, some crops perhaps have more, a uh, larger number of disorders associated with them than others. But, um, we kind of came to a consensus that we we couldn't we couldn't name a crop that, that lacked one. So, in the conversation that Dr. Seidman and I have today, there's going to be a lot of generalities, if you will, uh, kind of maybe some sweeping statements that may or may not apply to each and every situation that you're experiencing on the farm or in the garden. But what we do hope is that the information that we're that we that is shared today leads you to uh, a point where you can take a definitive step towards reducing the impact of these physiological disorders, negative impact on your operation. So for example, that might be in choosing a different variety, just like, you know, outright saying, you know what, that variety is uh, variety A that I've been growing for a number of years. I like many aspects of it, but frankly, the marketable yield is just too low. I'm tired of throwing away fruit or whatever it might be. And you would change, change, uh, change up the variety perhaps. Um, at some point in the conversation here, we'll also get to the management side. There are, as Dr. Simon mentioned, you know, there are conditions that bring these disorders out that kind of predispose a susceptible variety to display them, right? So as the manager of that genetics uh, farmer, you'd, you'd want to take whatever steps you can to uh, limit the occurrence of those, of those particular conditions. Um, so yeah, that's just a bit of a recap from of where we have been and, and uh, a bit of a glimpse into where we're going here in the next uh, few minutes. So, so Becky, with that kind of in mind, I mean, we've talked about this genetic component. Um, there is an underlying genetic component to many, many disorders. It is possible, I mean, you would, you would need to correct me, that the scientific community doesn't have a handle on the genetic component for all the disorders. Uh, it, 
has a strong handle on some disorders, and you mentioned yellow shoulder as being one of those. But as troublesome as they are, problematic and you know, really damaging, we just don't have the data to definitively say, oh, this disorder can be tied to this gene or those genes or that particular set of alleles, whatever it might be. Is that a fair statement to make? I definitely think so. Yeah. They've been really notoriously difficult to really pin down um, in reality. And we'll probably get there later in the discussion. In reality, we don't even really know what causes some of these. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's um, mechanistically. Right. Right. And um, for a bunch of scientists to say, we don't really know the cause, it can be like we talked before. It can be humbling, but also quite freeing because what we need is uh, obviously, uh, we'll get to that later a little bit, you know, a concerted effort around that. And obviously, uh, obviously some support where it, would, where it would be needed. But would you be willing to choose a disorder, maybe blossom and rot, uh, maybe uh, tip burn, whatever, whatever one that you would like, um, and for the people who are not so up on the mechanism, uh, explain it, uh, you know, briefly, and like what what is the mechanism behind you know this particular disorder? Just for the folks who are not yet totally familiar with it. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I will to the extent that's that I'm capable. Um, maybe I will. I'll start with blossom and rot because that's one that you know it's problematic, certainly in tomato which we've been talking a lot about, but it's also problematic in cucumber and summer squash and zucchini and um, pepper and, you know, a lot of fruiting crops, we get blossom and rot um, to one degree or another. And there's a lot of misconceptions, I think, about blossom and rot. So, um, you know, for those who are lucky enough to not be familiar with this, this is um, a disorder whereby the fruit starts to grow and everything looks hunky-dory. And at some point during that growth and expansion phase, um, the the tip of the fruit where the blossom dropped off, um, actually essentially the cells in that area die. And so it turns often dark. Um, Sometimes it's just remains a dark spot on the fruit. Sometimes the entire fruit end um, withers up and dies and sometimes the whole fruit dies. So this renders fruit totally unmarketable. So there's actually um, still currently plenty of debate about what's actually causing this. For many years, um, uh, scientists believe that it was a deficiency of calcium at the growing point because there is a deficiency of calcium at the growing point that that dies the the dead part of the blossom the blossom and rotted part of the fruit um but it's not because there's not soil uh, not calcium in the soil that the plant um you know can't take up it's that for whatever reason the plant is not able to actually move that calcium to that new growing point there's actually folks who now believe that it's actually the blossom and rot that causes the calcium deficiency, which is um, sort of turning things around yeah, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but regardless, the point is really that there's, um, if we kind of distill it down, there's been some kind of growth spurt wherein the plant is just not able to take up water and get that calcium to the growing point. And that appears to be what's causing blossom and rot. Um, For those of us that 
grow fruit in not perfectly managed, consistent climates, that's kind of a fact of life that we have, you know, sunny weather followed by cloudy weather, followed by, you know, lots of water followed by insufficient water. And so we get these growth spurts that basically, um, that mean the plant can't take up and move that calcium to that growing point. And that's what, what ends up causing that. Um, yeah. So this starts to get into like how we actually prevent and manage that. Um, and I don't know if we want to go there at this point, but. Sure. Yeah, we can, we can tell you, cause you've mentioned, uh, we definitely can, I and mean, we can circle back as, as needed on mechanism for sure. But, um, what you just described there, you know, the cloudy, the sunny drought, flood, I mean, kind of situation, these on again, off again conditions, uh, I've just described the situation for many farmers and obviously many, many researchers and many breeders, right? Who are trying to develop um, new and improved varieties. And so if there's an, like you said earlier, underlying mechanism uh, that isn't repeated, repeatable, reliably, um, it makes it difficult to screen, but it also makes it difficult for growers to be on the lookout for conditions that would bring it on. But can you generalize about those? I mean, what, are you willing to generalize about you know the conditions that uh, tend to bring on the, the most blossom and rot or any other disorder that you'd like to highlight beyond, if you will, the susceptible variety? Uh, assuming yeah. that you have a, uh, a reasonably tolerant or resistant variety, what what could still bring it out? Yeah, it's really um, if to generalize, I would say it seems to be the it seems to be the worst case scenario when you have sort of a, a fruit load on the plant and you've had sort of relatively consistent conditions, and then there's a sudden change in um, the sudden change in some environmental aspect, because of course they're all interconnected, the temperature and the moisture, and these are all like, you know, one affects the other. But when we think about water uptake into the plant, anything can disrupt that. So for example, if we've had a spell of pretty consistent, like moderate temperatures, um, sunny weather, and then all of a sudden we have three or four days of rain that can result in lots of water coming into the tunnel or vice versa. If we have steady, pretty consistent, um, conditions with a lot of, I'm talking about tunnel, but in fact, it's true in the field as well. Right, so if right. we have nice, consistent cloud cover, like periodically nice sun, and then all of a sudden we get three days of 90 degree and hot and sunny, the plants are just not going to be able to respond well, um, and take up water to meet that sudden demand. And that's a great case for getting some blossom and rot immediately following that. Um, I don't know if that's consistent with your um, observations as well, but I think this, this major changes in environmental conditions results. Very, very consistent with my, with my experience. In addition to that, to that, uh, if you will, the roller coaster ride that you kind of, you, you just described for us in terms of the growing conditions and having the, uh, the plant and slash crop be at a kind of a susceptible state. Um, uh, certainly, certainly is repeated, you know, often. I, I've also seen conditions where I, I just think it's, it's not so much a lack, or I'm sorry, an inconsistent growing conditions. It's just uniformly poor growing conditions. Somebody is not irrigating properly, not fertilizing properly. Um, 
maybe not pruning when pruning is needed, uh, these, these sorts of things. And it's not so much about the up and down uh, action of, uh, of, the, of the conditions as it is uh, just outright poor conditions to, to start with. And, uh, and if you layer the susceptible variety on top of that, then, then you end up with a very, very frustrated farmer, I think. Um, we do have a couple of questions in the chat box, which I'll get to in just a moment, but uh, one of them definitely uh, leans towards the question of, okay, um, kind of a two-part question. Okay, I see these little, uh, you know, these little defects, if you will, beginning on the, the leaf, uh, my lettuce or my, my leafy vegetable crop, or I see that my, uh, the potatoes that I'm digging are kind of shaped like a dumbbell or, you know, with a teardrop, they're misshapen. I see the black spots at the, at the bottom side of my tomato fruit. Um, is there anything I can do to, re to, to correct it, basically? Or what's, can I take any steps that would turn that otherwise perfect red fruit into one without blossom under eye? Uh, is there anything I can do to make that potato not shaped like a dumbbell or get rid of that tipper? What, what's your take on, on that aspect? In my experience, you can't really fix it once it's started. Um, that's not to say that you can't fix it on future fruit for that same plant or, you know, often when we, for example, experience misshapen potatoes, it's because of some sudden, usually moisture related thing, um, that, you know, subsequent, subsequent tubers may not be impacted, but the ones that formed at that time are still going to be impacted. And it's quite hard to recuperate from that. Um, similarly with lettuce, that's a tough one because, you know, if you start to get some tip burn, that's kind of affected the head that's affected what you've got there. And there's no real easy way. You're not going to make that better. Um, really you're going to rely on your sequence plantings and hoping your next ones, you can mitigate those, those, whatever problems you caused that. Definitely. We've been talking a lot about, uh, or we've invoked, I should say, you know, water relations in a number of these uh, in a, in a different points in our conversation. If we dial back just a half a step, um, do we have a set of disorders that can be traced? I mean, and we did mention calcium, obviously, for blossom mineral, but are there uh, disorders that also can be attributed to, uh, so far have been attributed to other uh, fertilizer or nutrient deficiencies? I think yellow shoulder might be might be one of those. Um, at least there's a component there. Um, are there other disorders that, that come to mind uh, that can at least partially traced to nutrient imbalances or excesses or deficiencies that, that you know of? Well, I think you hit on a good example there with yellow shoulder. So that, that has been um, traced or is associated with low potassium levels. And so while that doesn't mean that, unfortunately, we can't magically solve the whole problem with potassium. <laughs> it means that potassium could be one of the causal factors. So, you know, that's something we can do to actually reduce yellow shoulder problems. But I would say for the others, it's interesting, you know, I mentioned water, we've talked about water, but I just see water and heat and sun and temperature as all like totally intertwined and actually nitrogen as well, because, um, you know, all of these things kind of interact together to cause spurts in growth 
and to limit growth and limit cell expansion. They all like interact. And so I think it's really difficult to sort of tease them apart. I kind of feel like, I kind of feel like um, yellow shoulder might be sort of an exception in that there's this other like clearly identified fertility piece. Um, right. I guess boron deficiency causes all kinds of weirdness, um, yeah, weird disorders and, as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, but I just, I think a lot of these sort of require sort of a perfect storm of all of these things to come together, which is so frustrating because you might have control over some of these factors, but you sure don't have control over all of them usually. Well, well said. Um, you know, what the, a question in the chat asked specifically about dealing with uh, uh, black heart or hollow heart with foliar fertilizers. You know, we we kind of began this uh, portion of the conversation with a uh, can you re- can you remedy the situation? You know, can you can you reverse it? And uh, I think the answer is basically not, uh, at least on the on the effective plant parts. Um, but uh, do you have a, do you have anything to say about foliar fertilizer as as an application of foliar fertilizer as a specific tactic to address any disorder, uh, whether it be black heart or hollow heart, but any disorder offhand that, that comes to mind? I can't think of any that I have seen definitive results that give me great confidence and lead me to believe that foliar applications of something actually help. Um, I'll jump in and say, uh, and, I, and I know that we don't want to, um, we want to keep true to the, to the topic of the day, which is disorders, not the disorder of, of uh, loss of minerals, <laughs> but I think we're doing a good job with that. But, um, I would say, uh, ooh, number one, I would, I agree with you. I'm just stepping in. I'm kind of stepping out of the host uh, aspect and just making it, sharing an opinion. I do hear of a lot of uh, foliar calcium being applied as a potential deterrent for blossom end rot. Uh, are you willing to share your views on that practice? Yeah, I, from the research I've read, it just doesn't suggest it helps. Um, I can be wrong and researchers don't have, you know, research is done by people doing controlled studies in certain environmental situations. And right. it's very possible I'm willing to accept that it's it's people's on people's farms, the environmental situations are different. And it's very possible that some in certain circumstances, these might help. I haven't seen evidence that suggests that they will help um, from controlled studies where it's been applied in some places and not applied in others. Um, and so I haven't seen that despite the fact that a lot of people do it. I haven't been convinced that is a worthwhile practice. Have you, Matt? Uh, I have. I, I no, I have not. So okay. <laughs> I'm sorry, I want to make sure <laughs> I answered. I answered your, your specific question. So no, I have not. Um, I would echo what you said. Uh, you know, from my you know from my uh, experience, uh, it, there is a lot of it being applied. I'm not here to question the the uh, success of it. You know for an individual farmer or, or a crop. Um, I'm simply reading the data and the data that I have available to me suggests that there is marginal if any benefit, um, particularly if we marry that up with what we do know, at least think we know about the movement of calcium within plants. Um, 
the likelihood of a folder application of calcium actually getting the fruit where it's needed is very low. Um, it's kind of like uh, my analogy has been, and then we could possibly move on. You know, if you're thirsty, you don't you don't take off your shoes and socks and stand in a bucket of water to drink. That's that's just not how it works. And so, if you need to get calcium to the to the end of that fruit, you need to go back and listen to what Becky had to say about water relations, nitrogen management, the growing conditions, some of which are beyond your control, like sunlight and so on, and perhaps focus on making your crop as consistently happy, if you will, but not overly happy um, as possible uh, and have done a lot of homework in choosing the, the most resistant variety possible. I mean, that's just, uh, I'm, I, I, I apologize for stepping outside of the, uh, out of the side of the host, host domain here, but that's, that's, that's what I have understood to be, uh, under, understood to be the case. Um, so is it a, what are your top recommendations to folks? I mean, they, 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 they come to you with uh, questions. They, they might offer complaints. They might send you pictures of affected plants, uh, crops. And um, sometimes, again, you know, there's no going back with these individual crops. It's, it's more about planning for next time or the next, next planting. Um, are they, and this is, ex, this is from experienced growers and less, less experienced growers. Are there general recommendations that you tend to, tend to land on? Uh, I know it's a case-by-case -case basis, but are there any that rise to the top as to perhaps the one that's most frequently offered based on the situation that you know to be you know, work, you know, at work there? Yeah, I think you actually just said it a couple minutes ago, and that is like try to create an environment where the crop is as consistently happy as possible. Um, and the key is really consistency. Um, and again, I like what you said about it's planning for the future. And it's, um, you know, if you have a situation where you've got some disorder really affecting your production, take a careful look. If you've got multiple varieties, try to look to see, you know, are some of them more resistant than others? Are they all showing it equally? Are there certain patterns that you can deduce in your own site, like about where it's worse than others so that you can kind of take information from that to try to help create that more uniform environment? You know, for a lot of the tomato related disorders we've talked about, you know, often growers have good success by just upping their irrigation frequency overall. Um, that's not clearly the answer for everybody in every case, but maybe upping the potassium, upping the irrigation frequency, you know, depending on the situation, these, these can help make it as consistently happy as possible. But again, you know, it is, it is really sort of taking a deep dive into why in this particular case, in your site, it's really like causing a, a significant problem and trying to address that for the next go round. Absolutely. Uh, folks, we are speaking with uh, Dr. Becky Seidman, University of New Hampshire, about apoietic physiological disorders. These are disorders that uh, do not have, we, you might have heard us uh, uh, speculating about the actual mechanisms, but one thing we can say is that they are, they are categorized as disorders that do not have an insect or disease at the root, uh, as a root cause, right? Uh, damage to the fruit as a, you know, or the leaves or the stems or what have you that's caused by insect feeding or um, activity or, or disease. These are disorders essentially 
that are traced to the plant itself and uh, maybe how it's managed. Um, so they're abiotic and worse, and they're often physiological too. And we've been trying to cover the waterfront since there are so many of them and they each have their own mechanism. Uh, we've been trying to cover the waterfront and speak uh, as well as we can on, you know, uh, uh, factors that, that uh, all of you could take away and apply to your operation regardless of, of what you're growing and where you're growing and how you're growing. Um, and I think, uh, Becky, if I could, I think one of those most durable recommendations, and I think you just alluded to it, is, you know, study up on the disorder uh, or the disorders that seem to be uh, troubling you the most consistently. I know that you've written and uh, done, uh, offered a lot of resources in, in this area, some of, the, some of the best I have seen. Uh, and uh, they're just really, really informative. Um, if you wouldn't mind taking taking a minute to to speak to those resources that you that are available, and you know, feel free to tell people how they can get them, but also bring up whatever other resources that you think might be useful for people to be to to uh, to be aware of as they as they proceed and kind of get to know the disorder that's troubling them, so that they can actually perhaps uh, overcome it more effectively. Yeah, sure. Um... Well, I've only wrote about a couple of these, um, mostly because I get so many questions about these and I really felt the need to sort of try to synthesize what we know or what scientists know in general more broadly than me specifically. And so we, I put together one on blossom end rot, sort of a, uh, sort of kind of a fact sheet, but it kind of goes into more detail than you ever wanted to know. Um, about blossom end rot. And I think if you just Googled blossom end rot UNH, it would probably pop up. That would probably be the most direct way to get you there. Um, I also put together a super short little tiny video on yellow shoulder management in tomato with, and it, it's a video because it was pretty important to get some sort of pictures to kind of show um, some of the, some of the features that you might want to pay attention to in selecting varieties and so forth. And again, yellow shoulder management, UNH would probably get you there. Um, other than that, every crop has a, for every crop, for every vegetable crop and berry crop, fruit crop, you name it. Um, the American Phytopathological Society, APS, has put together a disease compendia, compendia of problems. Now, this is counterintuitive because we're talking about non-diseases, but in there, in that compendium for every crop, there's a section on disorders. Mm -hmm. And often you will find that the disorders um, are sketchily described at best, but that's because the scientific community doesn't know that much about them. But that's my go-to place when I want to learn more about some weird disorder that I haven't really studied before. And so I just, I would maybe put a plug in that if a crop is really important to you, if you have, uh, for example, if, if you are a big tomato grower, if you're a big potato grower or you name it, um, it may be worth investing in the compendia. Um, they're not cheap. Um, but they are this wealth of information with pictures of pretty much everything that can befall that crop. <laughs> and right, I don't know, for, right, right, right. for me, they're a very, very valuable resource. Um, and I would think, you know, it's a tough sell perhaps for a super diversified grower who doesn't want to have a library of 20 compendia to look at, but 
if something's a really important crop for you, that's a great place. And if you, if you don't want to invest in that, your extension specialists nearby have them and would likely inform you really quickly about those disorders. I guess those would be the best resources that I, I would come up with right off the top of my head. Very, very well said. Yeah, the resources that you described that you put together are top-notch and the compendia are also, like you said, a, a total wealth of information. And I think that just strikes at, at another point too that we, we probably didn't make a lot of at the time, but might bear mentioning before, you know, before we wrap up, which is you know some of these disorders do mimic problems that are caused by insect and or pathogens, right? And so, uh, you know, we, of course, have been, in this conversation, we've been very focused on the abiotic physiological side of things. Um, and uh, naturally, because that's, uh, you know, that's, uh, they're very important as well. But, you know, some of the damage that we, uh, that we see in our vegetable and, and uh, horticulture, especially with crops, can, you know, some of the same symptoms can be, can be caused by, by biotic uh, organ, you know, organisms as well, microbi- you know, microbiology or, or uh, arthropods, whatever they are, uh, winged or flying, hopping, crawling, whatever, whatever. So those compendia um, or similar resources that help the person differentiate one, you know, what caused from the other are super, super helpful if there's any question whatsoever. But like you said, your, your, your nearby extension specialist or county educator or county agent, um, Another grower that you trust, obviously, a private consultant that you trust. These are folks, a seed, uh, seed uh, source uh, purveyor, you know, salesperson. Um, if they, uh, if they're walking the the walk, so to speak, and they're seeing a lot of crops, and they have uh, they have a bit of training behind them and experience, then then obviously they 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 have something to offer you. Um, and it's the reading that I think I was alluding to, watching what have you. I mean, just seeking out the information that. It's at the core of like the the uh, the issue that the person's facing. Like you said, for a super diversified grower, there may be twenty of those, twenty of them, unfortunately. But if they narrowed it down, they might say, you know what? If I have a top three that really caused me a loss of money. You know, like if I really add it up, if I really scrutinize my situation, the thing that really gets me the most, you know, it just annoys me the most, it hurts my wallet the most. You know, they could name those top two, three, or four, and those are the ones they'd want to look at. You know, between crops, uh, obviously, in all their free time, <laughs> if you will. Um, so we do have one more question in the chat, which goes back to uh, kind of a, an aspect of this conversation um, that we that we covered before, but I think bears repeating, uh, bears addressing again. Question is, what weight do plant breeders put on abiotic disorders versus biotic ones in their breeding? Um, as uh, uh, what what do you have to say about that in, in general? What what weight is put on the abiotic versus the biotic disorders when when breeding happens? I I really do think it probably depends on the crop, um, and that in for certain crops, probably there is a pretty big emphasis placed on abiotic disorders, uh, especially ones that are easy to or possible to create um, because in order to, for a plant breeder to select for it, they've got to be able to create those conditions to create that problem consistently. So I think that it probably varies a little bit. Um, I will say that as a former plant breeder who is very interested in resistance to various stresses, which 
are really what cause a lot of these disorders, it is easier to select for something that has, that's really easy to control or create like biotic factors often. You can inoculate the plants or you can expose them to exactly. 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 And I think, you know, one thing that we didn't really talk about before, but I think when we look at any of sort of the high yielding vegetable crops that we grow now in our modern varieties, while they are in general pretty resistant to stresses and they've really been selected to perform well in our production environments, we are kind of up against sort of the boundaries of what's possible for that crop. Like they are producing a lot of product for us. We, you know, it is possible from an indeterminate tomato growing in a pretty cushy environment to be getting 20, 25 or more pounds of fruit per plant. That's asking a lot of this plant. So, um, you know, there's, there is something to be said for what we can possibly hope to achieve um, in terms of high productivity, high quality and resistance to stresses. That's not really answering the question, but it's giving maybe a little perspective on it. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, do you think that there are times when people are pushing so much for total yield that they actually suffer with marketable? And if they dial back just a tiny bit on the push for total, they might have, I mean, am I admit or am I mixing it all up? I don't know. It's possible. You know, the thing that comes to mind um, for me is that we, you know, thinking about where plant breeding and selection is happening and in what environments that's taking place and to what degree those environments mimic the ones that you are growing in as a farmer. Um, And, you know, a classic, you know, a good example to think about, you know, for those of us growing in, in humid, (laughs) humid summer, warm summer climates, this is not the same as growing in the arid West. And so if a lot of our plant breeding is happening in, you know, really controlled environments, like our high tunnel tomatoes, for example, a lot of that breeding is happening in controlled climate conditions. How close are our high, t- our, our high tunnels to that environment? Um, or are we presenting stresses to those plants that they're not experiencing during the breeding and development phase? Um, yeah, that's I, also, you know, for field crops, you know, for lettuce that's being bred in Salinas, you know, that's a pretty different environment than I would argue we we expose it to in the upper Midwest. <laughs> I'll concur with that. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, not having uh, lived and worked in Salinas, uh, but I, I feel like I can appreciate, you know, what, what you just said in terms of, you know, the complexity that, that's behind the process, in the, in the process that brings us our new varieties. And that folks who might be listening to this conversation, um, operating wherever they might be, you know, Great Lakes, Midwest, Northeast, uh, Mid-South, Upper Midwest, what have you. Um, we may not be, and I'm going out on a limb and, and uh, we can begin to wrap up, but we may not be the so-called target environment. Um, at least we are not necessarily where the primary selection is taking place. We might be where the later stage evaluations are taking place in terms of your variety trials and screening, all of which is very, very important. So folks, if you are listening, and you do wonder, like, well, 
I mean, beyond even the, con the conversation about physiological disorders, but, you know, including them, local variety trials are relevant, right? Local to regional variety trials are relevant because they, they are a bit of a gatekeeper, uh, an indicator of how that variety may perform under conditions on your farm. So whatever you can do to support those, those local regional variety trials um, would presumably be in your own best interest, you know, uh, whether it's hosting one on your farm or attending a field day where they're displayed, whatever it might be, you know, those, uh, those local regional variety trials are very, very important. Um, so Becky, I very much appreciate the opportunity to chat here today. I know that we could go longer, um, but I feel in the interest of uh, the listeners and so on that we, we begin to wrap up before we do that officially, if you will, is there anything that we have not covered that you really think needs to be said um, about, about the topic? Is there, did I go off the rails with a question somewhere or miss, just completely miss something that you really think deserves to be said or asked even? Of, uh, you know, who... no, I, I think that we, I think that we've covered the topic. Well, I was thinking while you were talking about disorders that mimic diseases and in insects, that it might be worth mentioning one of my favorite disorders that isn't even really a disorder. It's just a normal thing that I get questions about literally all the time, because I think maybe it might help one grower out there. Absolutely. Um, and that's um, for anybody who's growing spinach in cool environments. One of the things like without fail, multiple times a winter, I will get questions about insect eggs all over my spinach. Like so many insect eggs, they're freaking out little white spheres. <laughs> yeah. And I assure them, no, 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 that's normal. That's just a cold response to, you know, that's spinach produce glandular trichomes and they produce these little white spheres all over their leaves. And they do, they seem to do it more in cold climates. Like no one has written on this subject. Um, so it's hard to find information out there, but this is one of those things where it's kind of a disorder, but not really because it's just normal. But a lot of people get very concerned about this. So it's, you know, perhaps worth mentioning. Um, it's one that people tend to think is a disorder, but isn't. Very worth mentioning. That, that's yeah. spot on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> somebody is going to listen to this and say, that's what that was. That's or, what those are. <laughs> or, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I know who to call when I think I see it, right? That's some really <laughs> good sure. pictures of it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so that's 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 fantastic. Um, it's yeah. been a terrific conversation. I want to just say that uh, you have been listening to the Great Lakes Special uh, this program called Vegetable Beat. It's put on by the Great Lakes Vegetable Producers Network, which is a group of extension workers, educators, researchers from across the Great Lakes region. Is sponsored by the North Central Integrated Pest Management Center. And we broadcast live via Zoom at 12.30 Eastern Time, 11.30 Central Time, every Wednesday from the first week of March to the first week of September. And we interview farmers and researchers, like you've heard uh, Becky Seidman today, and others about topics that are relevant to vegetable growers. I'd like to invite you to join us next week. Uh, Dennis Van Dyke will interview Travis Cranmer, of the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs, OMAFRA, about garlic and uh, specifically clean seed to scaping. Becky, uh, again, I want to thank you very much for your time today and expertise, generous uh, donation uh, of both. 
Uh, thanks to all of the listeners for joining us. I'd like to invite you to have a great week, and we'll talk to you next Wednesday, same time and same place. Have a good one, everyone.